passage uh, for today, and then we'll pray and get going. So Romans chapter 12 is where we're at, and I'm going to be reading from verse 9 uh, through the end of the chapter, which we will not cover all in one setting. So, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, we are thankful for the good gift of your word. What a blessing to know that you've protected your book throughout the centuries. And, uh, and we have it in our possession. We are blessed people, and there are many places in this world where people do not have access to the Bible, do not have, a, have the Bible written in their own language. We do. We are blessed, and so help us as we share in your word today to see what the spirit has for each one of us you know each heart and so i pray that the spirit would use the scriptures this morning in each of our lives to produce the kind of change that you want that will bring you glory we ask this in christ's great name amen so we're in this section on applying god's righteousness uh, to our lives. Started in the beginning of chapter 12 after uh, all the theological teaching in verses 1 through 11. So much filling up our heads with knowledge about God and about sin and about salvation and so on. And now we're in the section of the book where it all gets put into practice. I'm glad for it and a little frightened by it at times. So, many, many years ago, actually it would be decades ago uh, when I was a teenager, I, I really disliked going to school. I, I disliked almost everything about it. Um, I'm sure I'm the only one that's ever felt that way, but I, I counted the days down to, you know, be finished with it. And, and years later, when I was 25 years old, I knew that the Lord was calling me to go to back to school, to, to Bible college. This time was much different for me. I, I loved going to Bible school. I loved almost everything about it. Um, 
Of course, there was a big difference be between the person that I was when I was in high school and the person I had become at 25. I, when I was in high school, I was a freaked out, drugged out, hippie kind of person. And uh, when I went to Bible school, I was conservative, evangelical Christian who wanted to know more about God's word. And yet, even though there was a tremendous difference in my, in my attitude towards the learning process, um, it, you know, it, was, it was still hard for me when I was at Bible school. And there's one thing that was particularly hard, and that was taking exams, taking exams. Even though I did very well in the exams that I, that I took at Bible school, I still liked dislike them very much. I, I would get very nervous. I would uh, be fearful uh, that the result of the taking the exam would show my deficiencies, um, that I hadn't studied hard enough and I didn't know enough. And, and perhaps you've had that same kind of feeling when taking exams, whether that's in an educational setting or just a life setting. As we go through uh, this next section in in Romans chapter 12 um, about you know how a right relationship with God uh, will be demonstrated and how believers conduct themselves in relation to others. This is how we deal, show God's righteousness in interpersonal relationships primarily within the church and it is as though Paul is presenting for us a spiritual inventory exam. It made me think of what he said in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, where it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And that's kind of what he's presenting before us in this passage is, a spiritual inventory test or exam. And this exam is important in that it will show clear evidence of whether we have committed our lives to God as a sacrifice, living and holy and acceptable to him, and whether we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind, particularly in the scriptures. And like myself, I don't think that you will probably necessarily enjoy taking this exam for it may well point out some deficiencies in your life not the deficiency of a lack of knowledge though that may be there too but that's not what i'm talking about but a, a lack of christian character not the deficiency of being not being better than others you know more righteous than others but the deficiency of not living up to our calling in Christ, not walking worthy of the call that we've been called uh, by God. And so if you take this exam, and you're, you're here, so you're going to take the exam, whether you pay attention to it or not, it's up to you. But if you take this exam and, and, and you find in your own estimation, and by the way, we're not going to be collecting the inserts and, you know, me be able to grade you. That's not what this exam, it's a self-examination that we're doing this morning. But if you find in your estimation that you have a poor result, <laughs> I encourage you, don't despair. Don't despair over that. Instead, let it be a cause actually of encouragement because now you know 
what it is that you need to work on, the, the ways in which God wants to change you. However, if you see that you fail the exam and, and don't, you don't feel bad about it, I would encourage you to do some questioning. Question whether or not you are in the faith, like Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, perhaps you've not truly repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you've been trusting in other things, church attendance or you know, being a good person or keeping the law the best that you can, that kind of thing. But if, on the other hand, you discover that you're doing well in all these areas as we go through this exam, not perfectly, mind you, but you're doing well, well, then rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly that God has brought about such a transformation in your character and your conduct for you surely cannot do the kinds of things that are addressed in this passage on your own. You just can't. But God can. So rejoice in that. So as we read through uh, this list of commands, like we just did, um, representing how a commitment and transformed life is seen and how we interact with one another, particularly in the church, it, it kind of reads in a staccato fashion, does it? Bing, 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 bing. I mean, you just kind of go, go, go. It feel like you're racing through it. At least that's how uh, it, I feel when I just read through it. And we kind of see them as individual comments or commands unrelated to one another. But truth is, that's not the case. We'll, we'll see how many of these commands... Uh, connect together and enhance our understanding of the kind of change God produces in those who are justified by faith in Christ. So you ready for the exam? Okay. On your insert, I've given you instructions about it, so hopefully that's pretty easy to recognize what to do, how to mark it, so on. But again, this is a self-exam for you to take. So here's the spiritual inventory exam, part one. We'll get to part two next week. So it's just, uh, I'm going to list them by number. So the first one is, if you're filling in your insert, you want to put it in. My life is characterized by genuine love. My life is characterized by genuine love. Paul put it in this simple phrase, let love be genuine. Now, several Bible versions translate this as let love be without hypocrisy. And that, in my estimation, is, is, is a more correct translation of the statement, though I do believe that Paul is focusing more on the positive side rather than the negative side. So even though the word, uh, it might be tr better translated as let love be without hypocrisy, he's really talking about having genuine love for one another. And the Greek word that he uses here in, in this statement about genuine or without hypocrisy, on hypocritos, uh, it, it's the word from which we get the English hypocrite. Everyone knows what that is, a hypocrite. And, and, and the, the little a-n at the beginning of that word makes it a, a negative. So it's without or be non-hypocritical or unhypocritical. In its, in its secular use, this Greek word hypocrit, hypocritos was one, referred to one who is 
who acted on stage, they played a, a part uh, that was not a represent, representation of who they really were in life. They were just playing a part. And in fact, actors would wear a mask. Almost always in the ancient world, they wore uh, a mask so they could look differently than what they really were. And men would play women. In fact, all actors back then were men, so they had different parts. But they would wear a mask to not only hide who they really were, but to represent the part that they were playing. And, and even today, you know, the mask is a symbol for the theater, isn't it? And you go into a theater and you might quite likely see two masks, in fact, on the wall, one with kind of a happy face and the other with a sad face. So from the idea of not playing a part, we, we come to the idea of not playing the part of one who has love for others. We, we, get, we get the idea that we should have a sincere or a genuine love for one another. And this is the Greek word for love is agape. Many of you are familiar with that. That's God's kind of love. That's sacrificial love. That's costly love. It's the love of choice, not a lo love of feeling. And, uh, and, and so that's the word that he's using here. And it was Jesus who consistently called out the religious leaders as being hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You're, you're beautiful on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. You, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is nasty. And he called them that on a regular basis. They didn't care for it too much. You see, they were acting the part of being religious, of playing the part of having a right relationship with God when in fact they didn't. They were hypocrites. So how easy then is it for us to act as if we love someone when our real focus is on what they can do for us? See, that's hypocritical love. Instead of having love which is characterized by selflessness, we can have a selfish kind of love. We love those who love us, we, who, who treat us well. So we have a if kind of love and a because kind of love. If you do me right and if you treat me well, then I'll love you. And I love you because you do things for me. I love you because you support me. You make me feel good. Um, we love someone who is satisfying our selfish desires. So do we have a love that acts at all costs to ourselves, or do we have a love that is at the expense of others so that we can be satisfied? That's what he is addressing here. Are we wearing the mask of a lover, or is our love without hypocrisy? An early church uh, Christian writer referred to how he viewed the early church in, in context of love. And he wrote, it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. Let love be without hypocrisy. So my life should be characterized by genuine love. Number two, 
I am uh, repulsed by that which is evil. I am repulsed by that which is evil. So the second point uh, in this evaluation exam is with respect to how we respond to evil. Now, the way it's written in my English uh, version is abhor what is evil. Now, can you honestly say words like, I am normally repulsed by that which is morally evil. I am genuinely and deeply bothered by the wickedness that I see in the world. I abhor and I hate, uh, as God hates, corrupting evil. It bothers me tremendously that at times I act in wicked or evil ways. So the word that Paul uses in this second injunction is quite strong referring to, uh, for the word abhor, it's a word referring to despising something, despising that which is uh, morally corrupt. It carries with it the idea that we should be horrified at what we are seeing uh, that is contrary to God's character and God's conduct that he requires. Does that, does that describe our lives? Could the words of the psalmist be representative of how we react to sin? So here's a few verses out of Psalms. Psalm 31, 6 says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Uh, 97.10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Hmm. Psalm 119.104, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Psalm 119.113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. And 119.163 says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Is that descriptive of how we feel? It, 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 it seems that many Christians have become kind of numbed uh, toward the sinfulness of sin in our culture. They have fallen into the trap of thinking of wickedness as a shame, but not as something that is horribly offensive to God and something they should hate. If bought into the American way of thinking, which is kind of this. Uh, well, everything that we do, it's just a matter of choice, and your choice is your choice. Instead of seeing as, as every choice is a separation between what is good and godly or evil and wicked. So our are, are we repulsed? Are you repulsed by what is taking place in the culture with the sexual revolution, with the LGBTQIA dot 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 uh, ideology, the, the cancellation of gender realities, what is being taught in schools about those subjects and what is being hidden from parents about the same? Um, does does it inflame you at all that the culture has for so long, so very long now, considered ending a baby's life in the mother's womb to be a matter of choice rather than the, the murder of one created in the image of God? And those are just a few examples of the kinds of things that we face on a regular basis that we should 
be horrified at, appalled at. So if we will see with the eyes of God, we will not be able to look upon sin and remain unmoved. When Paul was in Athens in Acts 17, it says he was provoked in his spirit as he viewed the idolatry. So we are to realize the wickedness of sin, and what are we to do? We are to hate it. Do I not hate those who hate thee, the psalmist said? And that doesn't mean that we hate the sinner as such, but we must abhor, we must hate, we must be horrified at that which is sin in the eyes of God. Yeah, we, we have to love the sinner, but that means that we have to desire that God set them free from the, 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 the sin that has held them in its sway. And, and that they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. But we also have to wake up and smell the awful stink of sin, whether it's in the culture or in our own lives. Whether it's in our own lives. And if it is in our own lives, then what do we need to do? We need to repent. We need to repent and seek restoration with God through His faithful cleansing of us through the blood of Jesus, right? So the next... The next command is clearly connected to that one. I cling to what is good. I cling to what is good. Paul put it this way, hold fast to what is good. So this is the other side of the coin, so to speak, isn't it? From being repulsed by what is evil. We are repulsed by the evil and we cling or hold fast to what is good. And we all know that we live in a culture that calls good evil and evil good, right? It must not be so with us who belong to Christ. It just must not be so. The word that is translated as hold fast in the ESV is wonderfully descriptive. It has the meaning of to be glued to or to be joined or attached to something. So, you know, you can think of you break something and you get some super glue and you glue it back together and it's attached. Or you, t you know, I've done that with any number of things where I've, I've glued pieces of wood together that are broken and they become stronger than what they were in their original strength. So hold fast, be glued to. Are, are we attached to what is morally good? Do our hands stick like super glue is on them to that which is morally good? Or do good things slip through our fingers like they're covered with oil? You know, just, oh, they're gone. Is it clear that we've committed our lives to God and we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind by the fact that we are not remaining neutral towards sin, and we are seeking to hold on with all we can to that which is good and godly. So to evil, we must say no. And to what is good and godly, we must say yes. Yeah, whatever language that's in. Da. Yes, yes, yes. The fourth one is, I have a heartfelt concern for my Christian family. I have a heartfelt concern for my Christian family. So again, we're evaluating 
our lives through this exam. And, and, and this one pertains to whether we love one another with brotherly affection, is how it's put. Now, Paul uses two compound words. This is kind of an interesting phrase because there's actually no verb in it, but it's understood. So he uses two compound uh, Greek words in this. One of them is Philadelphia. You know, we know Philadelphia, PA is the city of brotherly love. <laughs> How it does not live up to its name, mind you, but Philadelphia. So philos is the first part of that. That refers to a love that is an affection, a brotherly affection. And Adelphia is a, a brother, right? So Philadelphia. And the second word that he uses is philostorgoi. And again, philos, the affectionate kind of love. And storgoi or storgos is the word for natural family love, the love between a father and a mother or between siblings, etc. So he uses these two compound words in this verse to communicate that we are to have the kind of brotherly love and concern for one another that would normally exist in a natural family between siblings or between a parent and a child. And, and the need of this was particularly intense, still needed today, obviously, but in, in the early church it was even more so where one who trusted in Christ would oftentimes be ostracized by their family when they, be, when they became followers of Christ. So you take the, the pagan idolaters who are Gentiles that, that turned from worshiping the, their false gods and put their trust in the one true and living God, and their families would reject them and turn from them, would cast them out. The same was true for Jews, though, that put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They could be rejected by their families and, and be seen as blasphemers and cut off from synagogue and temple worship and even excommunicated to such grief that they couldn't even associate with those in the community in which they grew up, with the people with whom they had shared life. That was the cost of being a follower of Christ. So the reaction of the unbelieving, uh, now get this, it's the unbelieving Greek writer by the name of Lucian was this. It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it in their hearts that they are brethren. That's an unbelieving observation of the community of believers. And such is what we are. We are family. Family. Christ himself had said that he came to divide families rather than to unite families. So this is in Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told them this, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward the disciples, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
in a very real way, the spiritual family should be much more important to us than our natural or blood families. Is that how you feel about this church community? And it should even be broader than that. It should be to the, you know, all believers. You've probably had that experience where you've been talking with someone and you realize they're believers. It's like, no wonder it felt like we were clicking from the get-go. We just have the same spirit, the same attitude. We like the same things, dislike the same things, and so on. Is this church family in a very real sense your loving family? Are, are you devoted? Are you devoted to meeting the needs, their needs, and caring for them as you would for your natural family? We are to be there for each other in a time of need, aren't we? We we are to come to the aid of a brother and sister in Christ when they are under attack from the evil one. We are to bring comfort to to one who is going through a time of grief and loss. Can you say, I have a heartfelt concern for my Christian family? H-M-L. That's on your test, right? H-M-L. So the next uh, command is connected to the, this uh, idea of church family as well. I take the lead in showing honor to my church family. It's connected to that. We... we have concern, loving concern for each other. And he he says, I take the lead in showing honor to my church family. He puts it in these words, outdo one another in showing honor. So what is it to honor someone? To honor someone is to give them the recognition that they deserve it. It is to show appreciation for them. As I was writing that out, I was thinking of soldiers who had come back from fighting most recently, like in Afghanistan and so on, and how, as, as a whole, our nation has done a very good thing where they go up and they say, thank you for your service. They honor that man or woman who put their life on the line, right, for their protection and for their well-being here in the United States. That is honoring them. That is appreciating them. And, and showing honor and appreciation in that way should be the norm. It should be the norm for us who are committed to God and being transformed by the renewing of our mind and are part of this church family. And the word that is translated as outdo, or in some version it's, it's written as giving preference, um, it literally means to take the lead, is to be out in front. And what is Paul saying? He's not suggesting that it's a competition. You know, like, I'll get there for you to show honor to that person. Get out of my way. I'm going to, you know, give them some. And it's not talking about a competition when he, when he says outdo one another in showing honor. The point is that rather than seeking to be honored, rather than looking for others to recognize us, and rather than waiting for people to show us some appreciation, we should be striving to do those things for others in the church family. So, one author has put the importance of doing this in, in these terms. The insistence of, on, on position and rights, rather than on privilege and responsibility, 
is the seedbed in which a variegated crop of evil flourishes. But where love is expressed in glad acknowledgement of the achievement of others and genuine appreciation of the deficiencies of ourselves, it's hard for evil to triumph. So we should concentrate on the good points of others and our bad points and not on our good points and their bad points. So how can we practice this? You know, we're doing an exam. What does that, what does that mean? You know, show appreciation. Well, I just wrote down several things. Uh, take time to give a word of thanks to those who are serving in ministry here in the body. Those greeting you at the, at the entrance. Those who set up tables and chairs for us on Sunday morning. You might not even know who that is. That's tall George sitting in the back. He gets here early and sets all those tables and chairs up. For, for the body. Um, those who, who uh, keep the building clean, you may not know who they are either, and they might not like me telling you, but like Jed and Jamie, they vacuum this, this building every week, so that's clean. Steve is here during the week doing janitorial duties, so they have a clean toilet when you sit down on it, or, you know, it, it's, it's clean, it's well taken care of. Thank those. Thank those people for that kind of thing. You should consider giving a, a word of encouragement to those who are sharing, uh, the men who are sharing during the remembrance time. Thank you for that word. That really encouraged me. Thank you for drawing our attention to uh, what the Lord did for us. Give a, give a word of encouragement to a Sunday school teacher. I was thinking of Joanna, who's in Sunday school class right now. She's 91. She turned 91 this past week. And she's a faithful teacher for little kids. Awesome, awesome. Thank her for that, for her faithfulness to the Lord and to those little kids. Uh, and for Nikki, who's uh, working with the older kids now uh, on this uh, schedule. So, you know, consider doing that. Show some appreciation for those who are involved in the music ministry. Thank them that they help us to worship the Lord in, in, through music. They help us do that, and they get there early and, and practice and go through the song so that, that we can uh, enjoy worshiping the Lord through song. Hey, maybe think of thanking or letting the food service people know that you give thanks to the Lord for their faithfulness showing up every Sunday morning early and, and preparing a, some breakfast food as well as starting to work on the lunch that we're going to have so that we can sit down at tables and share a meal together and fellowship with one another. You know, show some Those are just a few examples. There's, there's others. Now, the next three items in our evaluation are also closely related to one another. And, and number six on your list then is, I have a great zeal for ministry. I have a great zeal for ministry. Now, we were singing this song, um, the task unfinished and uh, i was thinking wow some of the words in that song are right in the, this list that we're going through and this is one of them we read that we are not to be slothful in zeal and that uh, that uh, song used the word slothful and it used the word zeal that we'd have a zeal so the positive way of saying this it's put in the negative not to be slothful in zeal but the positive way of saying it is that we should have a great zeal 
for ministry. Now, last week we talked about the importance of uh, using the, the spiritual gifts that God graciously gives to each and every one who is a child of God so that they can be used in ministering to the body and as the body as a whole and that we should give 100% in doing so. And this idea is very similar, but it's expressed with the negative. Don't be slothful in doing that. And the word slothful you know, speaks about holding back or shrinking from doing something. And, and therefore, it, it comes out as being lazy or idle. Obviously, this is an adjective. Think of a sloth. You've probably seen a sloth on, you know, BBC's Planet Earth or on something else. And the thing with looking at sloths is you don't have to have very active eyes because they're just kind of hanging in a tree. And I watched one where they were swimming because they were looking for a mate. They were swimming. That's a sloth. Don't be slothful, he says, in zeal. And, and the word zeal is one which speaks of swiftness of movement. So it's the opposite of the sloth idea, right? Be swift in movement or action and be earnest in your commitment in discharging your responsibilities. Well, what responsibilities? Well, using the gifts that God has given you to... to to uh, minister in the body. The other things we've already talked about, love, loving concern and care for others, you know, encouraging words and so on and so forth. So when it comes to ministry, what characterizes your life more? Is it, is it laziness or zeal? Is, is it a shrinking back or is it a pressing forward? Is it idleness or engagement? So. What is it that gets your motor running, so to speak? Is it ministry? Or is it fishing? Or hunting? Or sports? Or vehicles? Or craft fairs? Or camping? Or family activities? What is it that gets your motor really running? Well, it should be ministry. It should be ministry, whether it is helping others or showing compassion or giving to God's work or leading in ministry or teaching or giving words of encouragement, the very things that we talked about last week with the gifts. Now, this doesn't mean, this does not mean that those other things, sports, cars, camping, fishing, hunting, hiking, etc., the things you may enjoy doing, it doesn't mean that they are wrong or that they shouldn't be enjoyed at all. No. It is a matter of what's most important, what's got the higher priority. And clearly that should be ministering to others, not satisfying my own desires, my own you know, likes and dislikes. And connected to this is the command that stresses that my spiritual temperature is at a boiling point. And that's the next one. My spiritual temperature is at a boiling point. Is that you? And Paul writes it a little differently. He says, be fervent in spirit. So the word that's translated fervent here is one which refers to something that is at a boiling point. Something that is aglow with heat. Think of putting metal in, in, a, in a 
in coals and then bring it out and it's red hot. That's the idea behind this word fervent. In the context of Paul's list, it refers to being stirred up emotionally and being greatly enthusiastic and excited or on fire for living for the Lord, using the gifts that he's given you and so on. And one form of this word is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where Jesus writes a letter to the church in Laodicea. And there he said these words, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. That's the same word. Would that you were either cold or hot. Same word. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot, same word, nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If, you, you, if your spirit is lukewarm or it is at a boiling, uh, not at a boiling point, uh, and a desire to live for Jesus, that's not a good thing. You have to be fervent, boiling, hot in your desire to live for the Lord. And this word fervent, again, just a little more about it. The Greek word is zestos. Zestos. And from it, we get the, the uh, noun zest or the adjective zesty, right? Zesty. And when I discovered this, I, and I, I think of zest, you know, you put a little zest in some food. What does that mean? It's got a little burn going on with it. It's zesty, right? And, uh, and so when I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about old commercials. There was a guy who was known as the Cajun cooking king. And he liked to put hot spices in his food. And, you know, it was like, oh, those are some spicy onions. And, and, and there was a line that he used at one time that was, oh, boy, those are some, those potato chips are zesty. Zesty. Is your life zesty? Is your spirit zesty? Is it hot instead of lukewarm? Would the Lord spit you out of his mouth because your spirit is lukewarm? Maybe you didn't know that there's actually biblical precedence for asking someone, hey, what's your spiritual temperature? Here, you got it right here. And that's what you got right here. Certainly that's what Paul is saying we should do, not ask others, but ask ourselves. We should examine the temperature of our hearts and our spirits and our desires in dealing with our spiritual family, whether we are in it. We're all in in this ministry. The next evaluation point is the church family must always maintain a right understanding of their position under the Lord Jesus. So number eight is, my life is characterized by faithful service to the master, or for the master. My life is characterized by faithful service for the master. So the last of these, uh, in this triad of commands is, that are connected is that we serve the Lord, right? Serve the Lord. And the participle, translated as serve, is written in the present tense. It's present tense participle, stressing something. What is it stressing? The ongoing nature of what is being described. That it's not just in the present that we're doing it, but it, the continuous nature of doing it. 
serving the Lord would be maybe the better translation because it would communicate that idea of ongoing. And the Greek word that Paul uses here to describe this, the word for serve, is doulao, which is related to the noun doulos, which is the word that is translated servant or better yet, slave. This is the verbal form of it. And it refers to acting or conducting ourselves as those who are in total service and absolute submission to someone that is over us. And in this case, obviously, we are to understand the unconditional lordship of Jesus over our lives and our unconditional responsibility to serve him faithfully. What was it that Jesus said? He said, you can't serve both God and money, Matthew 6, 24. It's legitimate to say, isn't it, that you can't serve God and anything else? It doesn't have to be money. It could be sex, or it could be drugs, or it could be uh, personal acclaim, or it could be any number of things. You cannot serve God, be a slave to God, a slave to righteousness, and at the same time be a slave to sin, slave to, slave to selfish pleasures, etc., etc. So who or what are you serving? Are you self-serving? Have you enslaved yourself to the things of this world, or are you you and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Romans 6 put it in the terms of you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. Now, the words we should all desire to hear from Christ when we stand before him at judgment, you might know, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Will he be able to say that to each of us? I, I truly hope so. I do. Now, once again, the next three items in this exam uh, list are closely connected together. So number nine on your sheet, I am consistently rejoicing in the hope of the glory that awaits me. I'm consistently rejoicing in the hope of the glory that awaits me. So this ninth injunction, Paul puts just in the simple words, rejoice in hope, rejoice in hope. So we should be able to say that we focus on the hope of glory on, on a continual basis, and that hope causes us to rejoice in the Lord. Now, hopefully you can remember what we said about hope earlier in Romans chapter 8. In the scriptures, the idea of having hope is not about, you know, it's not a wish that something may or may not happen. Like, you know, every Sunday I may wish that none of you will get bored during the sermon. That may or may not happen. Or that you might not fall asleep during the sermon. That may or may not happen too. Uh, you might hide it well, but it may still happen. So it's not a wish like that, or I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I'd win the lottery. Uh, unlikely. It may happen, may not happen. That's not 
the hope that is in the Bible. No, hope, particularly in the New Testament, is dealing with something that we long for and also have confidence or uh, certainty in it happening, right? For example, as believers, we are waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, Titus 2.13. Our hope is that that is certain is that Jesus Christ is going to return and take his children, those who have put their faith in him, to their home in heaven where they will be with him. John 14, verses 1 through 3. I'm going away, but hey, I'm preparing a place for you and I'm going to come again. And that where I am, you know, you can be also, he says. It's the hope of being set free from this mortal body, which is dying and is still tempted by sin. It is the hope of being like Jesus himself, who will transform our lowly bodies into a like body of his glory, Philippians 3, 20 through 21. It is the confidence that we see in Romans 8, 18 once again, that all the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. That's our hope. So knowing these things is our hope, and such hope brings continual rejoicing. That's what he's saying. The hope of glory brings us continually, continual rejoicing. Does it do that for you? Does it? I mean, that, that doesn't mean, by the way, we'll be continually happy. You know, uh, happiness and joy are not the same thing. I mean, happiness is dependent so dependent upon our circumstances and how we feel about them. While joy is the pervading contentment that we have because we know that God is in control of all things. And God doesn't promise us happiness, but he does want us to rejoice. Rejoice in him. Now that's, that's a, a wonderful truth and one that should allow us to say, number 10, I hang in there when the going gets tough. I hang in there when the going gets tough. Now, Paul puts it very simply, be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. Now, the connection between this and the previous one is that our future hope brings with it a proper perspective of our present circumstances that may bring suffering and trials and tribulation to us. And the word tribulation that is used here, thlipsis, originally referred to being pressed down or squashed. So you might very well say that during football season when, when three linemen sack a quarterback, that he's facing tribulation. He's under the pressure of those big bodies laying on top of him. But of course, what Paul is speaking about is Figurative, and he's saying that as Christians, we'll face much tribulation in this world. In fact, in Acts 14.22, it says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus told his disciples, you, you know this from John's gospel, right? That they will face tribulation at the hands of the world, just as he did. And then we saw in Romans 12 and verse 2 that we are not to be allowing this present evil age to be conforming us, molding us 
into its image. So be patient in that outside pressure that keeps on trying to squash our Christian beliefs and our trust in the Lord and, and so on. And the fact is that if we have a right relationship with God through faith in Christ and the gospel truth, then uh, you know his work on behalf of us and for sinners, we're going to be facing tribulation in this life, tribulation that the world doesn't know. Now, everyone in the world faces tribulation, believers and unbelievers alike, because we live in a fallen world among fallen people, right? But as believers, we face a tribulation that they'll never know because we face tribulation because of our faith in Christ. And that's what Paul is really talking about here, I think. And we are to continue to be patient or persevere through it. So the word patient more literally means remain under hupa, under mane, remain, abide. So uh, some translations put it as um, persevere, good idea as well. Patience, I don't think is quite the right idea. But with respect to us, we are to remain faithful to God while being under tribulation, whether that tribulation is coming from the world or it's actually tribulation that's coming from God to help shape us, shape us into what he wants us to be. Be patient or persevere or remain under the tribulation. Is that, is that your attitude towards tribulation? Is it? Or do you seek the first opportunity to slip out from underneath it? There's a saying that's been around for a long, long time. You, you know it. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Which doesn't mean they get going away from what's tough. It means they hang in there when the going gets tough. Right? However, far too often believers, they want to escape the pressure. They want to run away from it. So do you see the connection? Do you? Do you see the connection between rejoicing in the hope of the glory that awaits us and remaining under tribulations that help mold us into the image of God's Son? Hopefully you can see that connection. And connected to that is the third item, our last one for the day. Prayer is a priority in my life. Prayer is a priority in my life. And so if we're truly the kind of believers who rejoice in hope and persevere in tribulation, we're going to be the kind of Christians who are constant in prayer. That's the way he puts it, constant in prayer. It is in prayer that we find the strength to persevere in tribulation. And it is in prayer that we'll be able to focus on the hope of the glory that awaits us. So the word translated as be constant in the ESV means this. Hold fast. Give attention to. Persist. Um, be engaged in something. Be devoted to something. I think some of the versions translate it that way. Be devoted to prayer. So what is it that you persist in? What are you devoted to? What is it that you are engaged in? So, you know, we hear of devoted fathers and mothers, and we hear of devoted 
fishermen and hunters, and we hear of devoted athletes and devoted employees and devoted this and that. Wouldn't it be great if it could be said of us, this church, that we are devoted and persistent people who pray? We're devoted and persistent in praying. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when faced with tribulation, instead of throwing up our hands in frustration and our voices in complaint, that we would throw up our hands in thanksgiving to God for what he has brought into our lives and into our hearts, the joy that awaits us, the glory that awaits us would be predominant in our thinking. What a difference. So when you face tribulation, are you frustrated and you express your frustration and complaint to God or someone who's brought you know, difficulty into your life? Or are you first one on your knees, whether it's on your actual knees or just in the heart of, knees of your heart, so to speak, trusting God through the tribulation that in that time, turn your focus to the hope of the glory that awaits you as a Christ follower. So we have to see the connection between those three commands. We must realize that prayer is not just a ritual, but one of God's means for supplying strength in time of tribulation and hope in the face of fear. And it brings joy to us. Joy overflowing, abundant, full, is how John put it in his epistle knowing God should bring a fullness of joy to us. Part one done. Whew. <laughs> Told you, may not like it much, but that's a good thing. If you'll do the honest evaluation, you can take it home, think through it, and uh, hopefully you followed the directions and didn't mark mid, you know, M on all of them, because that just means you're not really being honest. Sometimes it's mid, but most often mid means I don't want to deal with this. So you can, you can remark if you want to. Let's learn from the Lord. Father, thank you for this portion of scripture written to children of God, to those in Christ, those that have been justified by faith, who have peace with you through that faith. Thank you that you've written out for us instructions on how a right relationship with you looks in our life. And this is one part of it. Just the, these many commands really dealing with one another relationship. Help us to be a church that is reflecting the truths, the commands, the injunctions, the, the encouragements of this passage. And that that would bring you glory and it would bring great joy to us to live in a way that does that, that brings you glory. So if there's someone here today and they don't really know you and the exam is pointing that out to them, will you draw them to repentance and faith in Christ even today? And then produce in them these kinds of changes, changes that only you can produce. So. All glory be to you. Thank you, Father, too, for the food that we're going to eat and the fellowship we'll enjoy around it. Be glorified in that.
We pray all this in Christ's great name. Amen.